0: Welcome to the Shack15 Conversations Podcast, where we invite founders, innovators, and changemakers to share ideas with the community, speak to the experience of building their businesses and unlock some of the hard-earned wisdom collected along the way. In this episode, we'll join Pamela Newkirk, award-winning author of Diversity Inc. and time-honored journalist with The Guardian, The Washington Post, and The New York Times. Pamela's work covers the modern socio-economic evolution of workplace diversity and challenges many of the broadly accepted paradigms surrounding big business diversity initiatives. In the process, she is able to seed, support and pave the way for the hard work and real conversations which are necessary to birth true equity and leading us in conversation, we welcome Charles Travail, CEO of Interbrand and host of the popular podcast, Outside In, on which he serially examines the nexus between consumer culture and big business branding, unpacking case studies and trends to reveal the strategies and philosophies driving the marketing decisions of modern businesses. Enjoy.
1: I was delighted to be, uh, for Pamela to ask me to do this. Having heard Pamela's story and read her book and seen the great work she is doing, I would do anything for her. So she's come to speak to our company very eloquently about this subject. And you know, for an hour, it's just a pleasure and an honor to talk with you again. And
2: right back at you, I have to say, <laughs> I've done dozens of interviews since Diversity Inc was published. And I found my interview with you to be among the most insightful. You asked the kind of questions that made me pause and to think because they weren't the questions that I was routinely getting. And so that's why I welcome the opportunity to sit down with you again. So thank you for moderating this.
1: So, Pamela, we recorded our first podcast the first time we really met. It was June 16th, I believe, or June 14th, actually.
2: Ah, is that when it was?
1: (laughs) It was only, you know, three weeks after the awful events of May 25th and George Floyd. You know, I and just for the audience's benefit, I went through... A learning curve and an education in the companies that I run. So I needed to get educated about race. I mm-hmm. thought I was a progressive and a liberal. And Pamela talked about a few things about liberals and progressives <laughs> that really opened my eyes. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, you know, I, yeah. I learned that, you know, thinking everyone was equal and, and being what, whatever we might call colorblind. Right. Uh, was a big deal when I looked at my own life and my own friends and the places I go to and the people I meet and mostly white. And so since our conversations, we've made many, many changes in our business wow. and I'm completely committed to making the change. We have to, but you know, a lot of people say that and a lot of it is words and I guess some of ours is, but we're really trying to put it into action. So thank you for, for helping us on that journey.
2: Well, thank you. And, and, you know, I wrote this book not for ultra-conservatives, not for, you know, Republicans. I wrote this book because I think that those who consider themselves most politically progressive, you know, on social issues, on, you know, a range of issues, I find that that is where we have a problem only because many think they're over this issue and that there's nothing that they can do
1: right. <laughs> to learn right. and
2: grow. And one of the things that was so counterintuitive in, in, in my research, with the, one of the findings, is that the, the fields that consider themselves the most progressive, you know, whether we're talking about film or fashion or academia, or you, you, you name it, a progressive field, newspapers, magazines, they are among the least diverse. And so that is where there is, is at least a chance of making an argument that can have traction. Because I think it's, it's the people who consider themselves progressive on issues of race have not been challenged. To think beyond, um, you know, their their comfortable station in life. Of course, they're not racist. Of course, they don't do those things that are easily labeled as racist. Yeah. And and they're probably not. But what are the practices? What are the customs they help perpetuate? And when have they challenged themselves to look? around to see, well, why are these, these realms so exclusively white? Um, what is my role in this? Am I just a bystander to injustice? Or am I a contributor to injustice? And so that's, that was sort of like w- where I aimed the book at the, the very progressive liberal community, because I think that's where we need to do some work, because I can't tell you how many times I've been to book parties or art openings or like a range of activities with all of these liberal people in New York City, and I'll be the only African American, you know, with the exception of the people carrying trace. Hmm. And this is a very, very diverse city. So how is it that that these good people are not noticing that they may have something to do with the perpetuation of exclusion because people hire who they know. They hire who their friends know. They look to the, the references from high places and people of color are typically shut out of that grapevine, right? And so it will take an extra effort to have diversity, because by the time a job is posted, that job has been filled. I mean, you know how this
1: works, right? Yeah, sorry to interrupt you, but I, no, I wanted please. to. I wanted to go back. Because you know,
2: to I you. could go on and on. No, I, I know. No, no,
1: I know. No. But, <laughs> but I wanted to go back to you being in the room with the board at the at the museum. I think I called you on the podcast. I said you were a moderate, and we laughed about that. But someone who has, is, has a moderating voice, but you, you kind of laughed and said, I'm not really a moderate. I'm always the radical in the room. You I'm talked the, about I'm the popping one who's people's always, balloons. Oh,
2: yeah, 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 yeah. I'm the one with the pen. Everyone feels yeah. so happy and comfortable, and I pop the balloon. And, and only how, do you,
1: because, how do you do it? What do you do? Well, I,
2: it's usually something like I just ask, did you notice? Like, like, did you mm. notice? Um, mm. th- there was one um, that particularly stood out for me that it, it actually made its way into my book. I was at an event, a lecture in New York City at a university that shall re- remain nameless. And it was an amazing lecture by a very prominent chronicler of the civil rights movement. And the audience was fairly diverse. And after there was a private sit-down dinner with the guest of honor and the university president and maybe like 50 guests. And so we go into the president's dining room and you know, it's lovely, all these like little tables, white linen and you know, the African American, um, the African Americans ringing the room, holding trays. And so I'm looking around and noticing, wow, Am I the only African American guest at this? And it's like, oh no, there's one other over there. And so I just asked my table guest, like, wow, well, did you notice? And people never notice those things because it's become so normalized. Mm-hmm. Like that is what those rooms look like. And and you know, if there is an African American or two, wow, that's diverse. Mm-hmm. Because how many times am I not in the room and there are no African-Americans? Because so often I've been the only one. I've been to book parties or no, it was a magazine party. Uh, it was the hundredth anniversary of this magazine. And I'm at this like big fancy party. Not one other African-American was in the room and you know it's like, how could that be? So of course the editor-in-chief of that magazine comes up to me because she wants to know, well, who am I? (laughs) How did I get in the room? I mean, I got a great assignment out of it. But this is so normal and no one bothers to question it because it's been so normalized. And so to think about diversity, you have to think about the way we live in this rigidly segregated society. And the way that people find out about opportunities and access. And it's in these rooms where so many opportunities are laid bare and we're not in those rooms. And why aren't we? These are good people. They have no African-American or Latino friends or Asian friends. It's just like, how does this happen so routinely and no one bothers to question it? So the fact is not even a judgment. It's like, okay, so this is what happens. So now how do we make sure that people are not shut out of opportunity because of these rigidly segregated social spheres that are then replicated in these homogenous workplaces?
1: Yeah, and what you, I just want to dwell on this sort of, this sort of cocktail party thing, because the other thing about them, of course, is, is they're just full of small talk. They're right. full of people wearing their fancy clothes and they want to meet the fancy people at the at the cocktail party. And there's not really very much discussion of any any weight, in my view, is what I have found in these well, sort of things. some of
2: them, like the book parties, maybe. Maybe, like the maybe. Bo- yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I but, think. Uh, and there are definitely discussions about
1: there are, job yeah.
2: openings, like, oh, there's That's a right. faculty opening here or there's a opening at this magazine, those things come up at parties.
1: But, you know, the thing I was going to go on and say is that this has come alive within our company because people have got angry and people have shown their emotions and people have cried. And, but you know, after the or George Floyd Black, Black Lives Matter, I mean, I was, you know, I've been running town halls with, with people and I was ashamed at one point to be the CEO of the company because people were... You know, from all different backgrounds, so for example, a Syrian woman who uh, whose family were refugees, and I hadn't stood up as CEO and said anything about, um, you know, Muslim bans with immigration, Chinese people within the company who felt insulted by the Chinese virus branding, people of color, Latinx people who, you know, I didn't know, I didn't understand. And I felt right. as the leader in the business, and these were really really powerful conversations. Right. And in my experience, limited as it is in this particular field, that's the sort of thing that has to happen for people to people like me to recognize the world is very different if you're of a different color. Exactly. Or it can be very different. So yeah. how do we how do we propagate those sort of conversations, Pam? Yeah,
2: because you're right. People are in a lot of pain. And mm. you know, over the Last four years under um, the Trump administration, they, it was like a open open assault on people of color, on Muslims, on mm. you know Latinos, on urban blacks, on women, on LGBTQ. Like it was just like so blatant, mm. and you know, yeah, institutional leaders should have something to say about this kind of just just wholesale bigotry that has given permission to a lot of people to behave really badly. So, you know, it's no surprise that there's been an increase in bias incidents against people of color, particularly if they think you're Muslim or Chinese or, you know, Chinese virus and like all of these things, people are carrying that to work and then to home And if people of color have to move on, have to keep going, as you know, you're in a a world where the phrase Black Lives Matter is really a twist because what it's saying is like society is showing that Black lives don't matter, right? right? And so people have to carry that day in, day out, knowing that their lives don't matter. Their lives don't matter to, to their bosses. Their Lives don't matter to their colleagues. Their lives don't matter to university presidents, to their professors, to the, so where does that go? How does that help us all remain in these like hermetically sealed off kind of boxes because our lives are just so, so different and yet we're walking on the same planet, right? But living an entirely different experience and so the only way you, to address that is to first recognize it, you know. But the problem in this country has been that for the past, like for four years, people were insisting that we lived in a post-race nation. So you couldn't even talk about issues of discrimination and um, you know the acute underrepresentation of Black and Latino people and every influential field. You couldn't even talk about it because the perception was that those people had it better than they be, even should. Mm-hmm. You know, you already had your black president, shut up. <laughs> you know, yeah. so that that has been probably where there's been an, an opening, you know, an opening to at least to begin to recognize the toxic ecosystem that we're all swimming in. and. There are ways to clean it up, but we have to recognize that there is systemic inequality, systemic injustice, and it doesn't end with policing, that it's manifested in every walk of life and everything we do in in opportunity, in lack of opportunity, it has metastasized, right? Mm. In, In a way that only by recognizing it, assessing how we get out of it and then doing the work that that's the only way like we we have to do the work
1: so pamela i asked you last time we met to give me a quick history lesson and my (laughs) excuse was i was a brit and i didn't understand you know american history or racial history in the united states and i i don't know how much that our listeners have really really understand this i'm sure if we have Black listeners and Hispanic listeners and Latinx listeners, then they will. But there may be some others who, who might just benefit from knowing how this all went wrong. Because you're right, <laughs> yeah. people, a lot of white people thought, well, hell, hell everything's got to be fine. We've had a Black president now. Right. But even if you went back to you know, the civil rights movement and sort of stepped us through maybe the 70s, 80s and you know right. up until today, you, you explained to me really well where it's all gone wrong and how we've actually, in some ways, gone backwards in some areas at least. So would you just walk us through that? Yeah,
2: we have. So of course there was the urban unrest in the 1960s, you know, um, where African-Americans like, you know, these communities just erupted over inferior housing, inferior education. We had a, a separate and unequal society that if you were black you couldn't work in most fields like th- there was there was just no opportunity or very limited opportunity and then there was the the uprisings in the nineteen sixties and uh President Johnson uh responded with what he called his great society programs um and as a result african americans were were hired to work in fields from which they had been, long been denied access for years. They were, um, you know, college admissions, like, like things just opened up in a way that they had not um, in, in 400 years, right? And then there was this virulent backlash to the progress that African Americans had made. And the thing that's so remarkable and, and worth really drilling down on is that African Americans had made so much progress that the poverty rates between blacks and whites were beginning, like all all of the gaps were beginning to close, like educational attainment, you know, economics, all of that, they had made tremendous progress without whites losing ground. But yet there was this virulent backlash to that progress in the form of, um, Reagan policies. He dismantled affirmative action programs. He dismantled all of the the policies and, and and you know practices that had resulted in this racial gap closing. And then you had a series of legal challenges, most notably in in the nineteen seventies, the Bakke case that went to the Supreme Court. Uh, a young white. Um, man who was denied entrance to the University of California Medical School. He sued charging reverse discrimination because they had um, they had set aside 16 spaces for uh, non-white applicants because to represent 16 percent of the non-white population at that time. And anyway, He sued because he didn't get in. And of course, it was one of the 16 that took his place, not one of the 84, (laughs) And the Supreme Court upheld that, uh, held that, um, you know, that was was indeed uh, reverse discrimination that you cannot use history, the legacy of racial bias as a reason to correct racial bias. And as a result of that, the progress, like we just began, everything began to recede. And um, we've been in that rescission, in that stage of rescission ever since, despite the perception of progress because of symbolic achievements of African Americans like an Oprah Winfrey, like a Barack Obama. And another thing that got lost in all of that. It, it meanwhile, you know, over the past 10 years, the gap between blacks and whites widened, the poverty rate of blacks increased, the, the it, like everything worsened at a time when people had this perception that we were living in a in a post-race nation. And you know, what what few took the time to realize is that Barack Obama lost the white vote both times and by an even greater margin the second time. His election was an indication of the nation's changing demographics. And you know, now you're talking about a, a country where 40% of the population is considered non-white. And, and so now we ha- continue to normalize the exclusion of 40% of the population in most fields. Most fields remain overwhelmingly white.
1: Yeah, so that's a problem. And I think you, you and many others believe that this lies, you know, the population change, I think, by within, what is it, 20 years, something like that. We're going to, you know, the United States is not going to be white. And the right. interesting thing you pointed out to me is that um, 20 of the United States' most successful cities Right. have been the like largest, that forever or for a long yeah. time yeah, and so the they're very successful cities. so what's the fear right. all about where is the right. fear coming from N-
2: new york la like you can name so many cities that have been majority they call them majority minority <laughs> 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 you know it, it, so it's like so it in those the, many of these cities are thriving and yet there's this this fear of what diversity, a more diverse nation will mean when most of our large, most successful cities have long been diverse.
1: Right. Yeah. We, we've we seen this come up in the last couple of weeks in my own country, Pamela, as you know, with Meghan Markle. Oh, my God! And, uh, you know, it's caused a massive divide in the country. Mm-hmm. Well, I would say down pretty much racial lines, I'm sure. And, and young progressives like my daughters are very, you know, were appalled by the 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 language or the inferences around the royal family i mean these are and now you see the white majority in the uk sort of justifying its position and saying well this isn't racism but it seems to me that it's not that white people can't decide what is and isn't racist.
2: Right. And they and they don't get to call it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so it, you don't I'm just get kind of scratching my head. How yeah. to label what you do to me? That, that's <laughs> let, right. Let me but, decide if it's yeah. rape, if it's racism, <laughs> like yeah. it's not your call. But yeah. you know, I, I think the thing that's so interesting, you know, I I travel widely. Um, I've spent a lot of time in in Europe and in Africa and it's the same problem
1: everywhere. Right. It's yeah.
2: all, it's, you know, the, the, the remnants of colonialism, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Like these deeply embedded ideas around racial inferiority and racial superiority, that, that ideology is everywhere. It's in China, it's mm. in Japan, it's, Everywhere you go, people look at it through a different lens and they call it different things, but it's the exact same thing. It's that Africans, you know, for a, more than 100 years, if you were a scholar or a scientist at one of the top universities, whether Oxford or Cambridge or Harvard, you held that black people, that African people were genetically inferior. Right. That was just a fact, mm. right, and this was like so deeply embedded in science and history, the whole field of anthropology is founded on that idea of these this racial hierarchy with northern European whites on top, and then you go down you know with and then you get to to Africans at the bottom so while this has been like so embedded in the fabric of the academy, who has taken the time? What academic leaders are like using their forums to, to talk about the ways in which the university has been in the forefront of, of perpetuating these notions of racial you know, a racial pecking order and they're quiet when it comes to dismantling that that ideology. Like they have a responsibility, They, you know, because their scholarship was used to justify everything from slavery to all, you know, to everything that happened, um, you know, in the name of colonialism, right? You know, people's populations just, you know, Decimated, ravaged, like plundered, and, and all in the name of. They don't know what to do with it anyway. We're we're superior. We're the like we have to be the ones <laughs> to, to, to to run this right. So this is a global issue. It's not it's not a U.S. problem. I think people look to the U.S. because. The US has the beautiful language around democracy and freedom right. and justice that we've never honored when it comes to race. Like all of the poetic language is for white people. <laughs> it was never intended to apply to people of color. And it, it is because, you know, my ancestors and other people's ancestors have held uh, l- the leaders of this country to the word. <laughs> the words in the Constitution that we've made the progress that we've made. But it's been a continuing uh, fight. And I think it's one that many white people have tired of. Like, they have the fatigue. They don't want to hear it anymore. It's like, if you think you're tired, what do you think? (laughs) What do you think? The people who generation after generation have had to fight the same battles that they're their ancestors did uh, so many years ago. So, in my book, what I sought to do was interrogate this tension between the rhetoric of diversity, the promise of diversity, you know, the beautiful language around, you know, we are the world and we're gonna do this, to the billions of dollars that is spent on diversity initiatives every year and the lack of diversity. So that's the tension that I wanted to interrogate how is it that institutional leaders year after year make these pledges to have more diverse workplaces and year after year they fail to do it but they're continuing to pour billions of dollars into failed practices and no one seems to mind that they're wasting all that money it just keeps on going it's like an engine it's like oh well We'll just issue another report that says, oh, we're disappointed and then rinse, repeat and they do the same thing again. And so looking at what's been done over the past 50 years, what has worked and what has not worked, I I came away with um, some ideas about uh, why it is that that these really smart people <laughs> have been unable to solve this problem, which they've made appear like rocket science, but it's really not.
1: Well, we'll let people read your book, um, Pamela, to get that to get some of these answers. But I, I wonder if some of it is to do with the fact that if you ask people, anyone, but but CEOs, people who run companies, if they're if they're racist, they they say no.
2: You don't I'm not have a racist. Be, no, and so I think, yeah. yeah, and
1: I think that probably lies at the core of this. I, no, I'm not a racist. Maybe some other people are, but I'm not a racist. Exactly. And I think what I don't know if you use the term anti-racist or anti-racist or, or not. But, I don't. You but, know, racism
2: yeah. is a word I really use because I'm not yeah. writing for racists. I'm writing for people who. Are good people may have good intentions. Right. Like the racists, like they—they're not going to listen to me, anyways. I wouldn't. I'm not writing for racists. I'm writing for people for whom uh, there's some goodwill, right? And and you know they—they—they're decent. They just don't know. Like there's this blind spot where race is concerned, because yeah. you could be as liberal as you know the day is long, but on matters of race, labels like progressive and liberal have. Absolutely no meaning.
1: Right. Well, I've realised that I, in order for me to tackle the issue where I can, I have to kind of become anti-racist. I have to. I have to recognise that. The racism isn't about me as an individual or about any, anyone as an individual. It's institutional. Unless, right. I, unless it's, I do something to drive the change, nothing, nothing will happen. So It's the right. system. It's, it's a system. A system. Yeah. So it's helped me move beyond thinking, taking right. it personally and thinking, is something I'm doing wrong? It. Right, to right. Thinking, no, these are programs that are required, systemic programs. And, and I loved your book. And of course, everybody in the company came up to me and said, we need to do training. We need to do this. And I just said, no, go read Pamela's book. No, yeah. Because because uh, I've noticed in I mean we had all those programs right a year in, ago in, right and it hadn't made any difference and because then because
2: they don't because yeah so many institutions are instituting programs to change people's hearts and minds. I'm gonna like train right. you not to be racist, or so I'm gonna train you to feel the pain, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like whatever. Right. Who Like, that's not why you go to work. What you need is l- committed leadership to figure out what kind of systemic practices, programs operate. How are we conducting our day-to-day operations that is contributing to homogenous workspaces? Mm. And what can we do differently? How do we disrupt these patterns of bias that have metastasized an unequal pay? Unequal opportunity, unequal bonuses, un, like underrepresentation, like what can we do about that? because at the end of the day, people of color don't care whether you like them or not, I mean they expect to be respected, but if I go and get a degree in engineering or journalism or whatever, I want opportunity to apply my trade to do my thing to to work to to grow and whether you personally like me really won't have any bearing on whether or not i can succeed if i'm given equal opportunity and so i think you know to focus on um how people feel first of all i think i would be more supportive of diversity training if it actually worked but what All of the research shows, particularly a very um, important study that was done at Harvard by Professor Frank Dobbin and a colleague, their study showed not only does diversity training not move the needle, but five years after mandatory training, the percentage and number of African American women in management, Asian men and women in management went down like they lost ground. <laughs> so not only is it, isn't it helping to realize diversity, it's it, you're losing diversity. And one of the other findings is that it triggers a backlash in the workplace, particularly among white men. So instead of recruiting them, bringing them to your side and to support diversity, it makes them even more resistant to it. So Hmm. it doesn't work. And yet companies keep pouring more and more money into it and losing the little diversity they have. Stop it. (laughs) You got to do something different.
1: Well, I like when you said in the past, you said in your book as well, panel, that, that, that this has got nothing to do with the strategies that are adopted. We know all the strategies. You, you say this is down to will. Yeah. Is a term you I've heard you use that a lot. Just talk to us a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, committed leadership and will. We've never been lacking for strategies to achieve diversity. What's been lacking is the genuine will and the committed leadership to make it happen. Um, as you know, I one of the case studies that I examined in um, the book is Coca-Cola and what happened after it was sued for racial discrimination and there was a landmark um, multi-million dollar settlement. And they, Went about systematically dismantling the systems that had resulted in the kind of discrimination that took place there, where blacks, even in the same roles of their white peers, didn't have were paid less. Um, they they were less likely to be promoted. They were less likely to you know to be in management. They like in every way that you could <laughs> show bias. There it was. They had someone or the person who was running their diversity operation. He looked at every employee, every job category, every movement concerning an employee, whether it was hiring, whether it was promotions, whatever it was. And he looked at if, there, if he was looking at hiring, he would say, OK, there were these job openings. What did the candidate pool look like? So everything was labeled. Everyone was labeled. Every position. And so then you had transparent metrics where you could literally see where people were clustered according to race and gender, where people, how people were paid relative to their colleagues according to race and gender, and after five years of doing this kind of systematic analysis and disrupting these patterns of bias in real time. So before a manager could even approve um, a hire or approve a raise or a bonus, there was, a, there was an assessment. Is this in line with what people in that same position get? Like there, there was an effort to ensure equity, racial equity Across the board, and after five years, they dramatically increased the number of African Americans and other people of color in management and, and across the company uh, ensured that there was greater uh, representation in more recent years, they've slipped mm. but but it shows what can happen with committed leadership and with will
1: yeah. And um, Scott Uzel, who's the CEO of Converse, came out of Coca-Cola from that era. So um, he's an African-American CEO of a subsidiary of, of, mm-hmm. of Nike. And I, I guess we still only have, I think, four black CEOs in the Fortune 500. Fortune 500, I, yeah, right.
2: Down from a high of eight, down to three. And I think uh, over the past month or two, I think there was one added. So we're back up to four. But we're, we've gone backward.
1: I was trying to do my homework a few minutes ago. I, I think I read that there had only ever been 18 in the history of the Fortune 500. And yeah, it was like since 1955. And there'd been 1,800 CEOs right. during that period of whom 18 had been had been black. There's that the problem. Right. And yeah. it's not getting any better.
2: No. And, um, and I mean, so that's if you could look at uh, Fortune 500 CEOs, you can look at corporate boards and who's on them. You can yeah. look at I mean, no matter what, you can look at just black managers, um, th- the numbers for uh, black managers, male managers at companies with 100 or more employees was like 3% 20 years ago, and it's 3.2% now. It's yeah. like we're yeah. we're either marching in place or moving backward.
1: Right. And I guess because of our audience who are in San Francisco, we're going to have a lot of people from the technology industry that has Uh, been, it's been trying and it's been making, you know, some progress, but still very very unrepresented in terms of
2: black uh, employees, women leaders,
1: et cetera, et cetera. So we may talk about that in a minute, Pamela. Sure.
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, I I talk, I write about Google in my book, which, um, in a single year has spent more than a hundred million dollars on diversity. And every year you look at African-Americans and Latinos in single digits and tech jobs, like 2%, 3%. I mean, just like really, really, really low numbers. And given, you know, the, the prestige of Google and it, it being this magnet, people would go come, go from anywhere to, be anywhere to work at google (laughs) you know it's like so it's not one of these hard sell companies so it's it's not education it's not like the money is going into into failed practices it's not going into because that money would be better spent if you did have a pipeline problem Pour that money into the pipeline, pour right. that money into scholarships, pour that money into, into under-resourced high schools and, and communities of color. Pour that yeah. like there are so many other creative ways that companies can realize diversity if it really mattered to them. If right. that if that yeah. was truly what they wanted to do.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to ask you how optimistic you feel now. We started around this. Um, (sighs) point you know we we last spoke just before the election
2: yeah and I think when we met it was just when Trump had had signed an executive order um Banning a fir- not affirmative act, diversity programs in right, federal yeah. agencies yeah. and uh, among federal contract government contractors. Yeah, yeah. so we were in that.
1: <laughs> we were in that. We were in a real low. No. How do you feel now? Because we we've got you know companies pledging enormous amounts. I mean, Morgan Stanley, I think thirty billion. Goldman Sachs, ten billion. Right. I don't know if it's all to towards racial issues, but certainly social and racial issues. Mm-hmm. Um, lots and lots of movement in, you know, companies really looking like they're trying to make a change now. Do you, do you feel optimistic about that?
2: Well, you know what? I have to be optimistic. You know, I have two yeah. children and, you know, as a black woman, if you're not an optimist, you <laughs> you probably have to take drugs or drink a lot. It's, it's, you know, we have to, you know, keep fighting and, and keep hoping that, um, you know, some of these, Lessons from the past will will be heated, right? Um, so yeah, uh, in in that sense, I'm optimistic, but i but I do worry that some think that this is just an issue of money. like right. you could just like buy your way out of this, and it's more than that, right it's It's where you're spending your money, because the reason why I wrote the book is that diversity has become a big business, right? right? It's this huge industry that companies spend billions of dollars on and don't seem to care that it's not <laughs> getting the job done. So it takes more than that. And and, and I do hope and I do believe that for, for many leaders like you, I, I do think that uh, there was a George Floyd moment, a breakthrough where there is... A greater reckoning with how the past continues to inform the present. And I I, I do think that, you know, while not every leader who issued a statement saying Black Lives Matter will do a doggone thing about it, I believe some will. And I do, uh, you know, we are seeing more change in the past you know, year than I have in my entire adult lifetime. Even looking at the 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 stimulus bill that was passed and how that is going to help cut childhood poverty in half. How can that not make me feel optimistic, at least about uh what we can do when there's actual will? That's why will is so important, right? Right. Because yeah. this is a country of great, like we can do great, great things when there is will. And so that that gives me somewhat uh, of a sense of hope, but I don't think there will be a time when we can ever rest on our laurels. And I, I think that when it comes to racial justice, it requires such vigilance. Like every time you think, okay, finally, you know, you take your eyes off the ball for a minute <laughs> and there the ball goes sliding back down the hill. So, you know, it, it, it will require, you know, a, a lot more work. But, yeah, I, I, I think I'm more, I, I have a greater belief that something will change, that for the better. But, yeah, we have a long way to go.
1: We do, we do. Um, I've got some nice questions in here, Pamela, if I can run to them in a minute. There's one sure. from uh, Cecilia Brown, and she's essentially saying, you know, uh, here we are in tech. Lots of diversion and inclusion, uh, in- inclusion initiatives seem to be slow progress. What advice do you have uh, for company, that companies can adopt to speed this up and move the, move the needle?
2: As I said, these companies need to stop these efforts to change hearts and minds and focus their energies on interventions, like all the steps that you can take to actually realize diversity and whether that means um, expanding the professional uh, networks of color that are tapped uh, when there are opportunities, whether it's like starting programs in historically Black colleges and universities, whether it's programs for high school students as i say in these under-resourced areas there is there is a hunger for tech for computer science in in communities of color in fact a study commissioned by google shows that there's a greater interest in it than in among whites right. and yet that's where there there's you know these great needs but if these companies looked at the number of students of color graduating with computer science degrees, they would no longer be able to use computer science, engineering, like all the STEM uh, degrees, they would no longer be able to rest on the excuse that there's just like a pipeline problem. What there is, is an opportunity problem. And 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 a mentorship, a need to, to mentor more of these students because you know, the dirty little secret is no one makes it without some form of, of mentoring. No one makes right. it without someone helping them through these very intricate systems, right? Yeah. You know, whether it's a college professor, or a guidance counselor, your computer science teacher, someone is helping people get to the table. And these, these opportunities are often lacking for communities of color. So there are so many things that are... These, these tech companies could do uh, to intervene in the lack of diversity, instead of talking about the lack of diversity. Right. They need to like just stop with the talk, roll up their sleeves and do the work. And there, there are many models that can be replicated, whether it's the one that Coca-Cola had, these are smart people. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is not rocket science. This is easier than the fields that they're in. It, yeah. it should not...
1: <laughs> shouldn't be that high. Hey, yeah. I've got, I've got a wonderful question from Jody and Stevenson here where you get. you'll love this one, Pamela. She gets cuts right to the chase on it. So she's love basically it. saying African-American black POC bear the brunt of financial pain during the pandemic, obviously, which exasperates the wealth gap. What could we do? And she's talking about African-American, black POC uh, people to ensure we get a piece of the pie and close the wealth gap. How do we get a piece of the pie? She's really saying. Because oh, it's God. unfair at the moment. What? Do, what how does that? We, how do you we change need, that? We
2: need a whole another <laughs> webinar for that. That's that's way too complicated a question. But part yeah. of it is is like this this opportunity piece that's yeah. missing. You know, people of color are acutely underrepresented in every influential field, not because they don't have this the skills and the training and the degrees. It's because you know it goes back to what I was saying about these social spheres, these social networks, and that are replicated in in all of these workplaces like so now companies institutions need to recognize that and figure out a way to usurp that like there are other ways you can recruit you can tap into uh professional networks of color you can like you can get around these things but first you have to recognize the reason why uh, you know we're perpetuating exclusion
1: yeah Great. There's a question, anonymous question here, which is a really good one and one that my companies have faced. Um, seems to be a huge problem in HR in tech around races, Masked being by people looking for people with the best backgrounds, i.e. Right. people coming from Ivy League or a tech giant. Now, obviously there are people of color at Ivy League schools, but too often those people get overlooked. What can we do to have companies expand what this person's called the pool of backgrounds that they can look at to bring right. people in.
2: Yeah. And too often they take people, even from the top colleges and universities, people mm. of color, and they still put them in HR and or in operations. Like they right. still put them, they, they kind of like railroad them into these like places where there's fewer opportunities. Uh, uh, there are fewer opportunities for advancement. So, like, again, it it comes down to having the transparent metrics, which Google, by the way, has, like they, to their credit, they do these surveys, the, these uh, reports, diversity reports every year. And they just don't show much progress from year to year. And like I said, they're doing the same thing and expect they expect different results. The only way they're gonna get different results is if they do it differently. <laughs> like they have to stop what they're doing and and follow another path. And I think if there was true will and intention, they would recognize that, okay, we've been doing this for 10 years and we've we're not really making any progress. Let's see what else what what other ideas are out there and how we can, you know, finally begin to to move the needle on
1: this. Yeah, there's a question from Leslie Hunter. She's asking about measurement. How do you measure DEI efforts and initiatives for for impact? I guess the Coca-Cola example was a good one there.
2: Yeah, I think that, yeah, because you have to have a plan where you have measurable outcomes, right? And that's what Coca-Cola did. They had these transparent metrics. They had a system of accountability to ensure that there was a level, a more level playing field for people of color. There was greater opportunity. And guess what? It worked. Yeah. You had more people of color in management and in, in positions from which they had historically been excluded. So it takes will and intention, and you have to know what you're doing. So there are successful models that you know these big companies. They could go to Harvard Business School. They could go anywhere to find models for how to do something. So th- oh, yeah. it's it's not a it's not a problem of. Um, that they we're lack, you know, there's a deficiency of strategies. It's it's that there hasn't been enough will to look at what can be done differently.
1: Mm. Uh, there's a question from some advice from a lady called Christine uh, Parini. She's a white woman starting a nonprofit to interrupt the school to prison pipeline. Wonderful. Uh, and, yeah, and create well-paying work with career paths for form- for those formerly incarcerated. I and my team will be approaching companies to encourage them to hire our clients. Do you have any advice for us?
2: I mean, yeah, you have to knock on those doors. And, and, and I think that there is greater receptivity to those kind of initiatives now than there have ever been. Like even looking at how um, states that have legalized marijuana, how young men of color who were disproportionately locked up for marijuana can't even break into the business of legal right. <laughs> marijuana because that's all been monopolized by the big companies. Something has to be done to give those, those young people a, an opportunity to get back into our, our society in, in a legal frame. So I applaud your efforts to try to break that cycle. And, and But I do think it's going to take policies as well. Things yeah. like expunging the records of, of these young people who went to jail for marijuana. There are so many things that we can do as a society to repair the damage that we've done along racial lines. You know, there are not many white kids who go to jail for marijuana. You know, blacks and whites use marijuana at roughly the same rate, with whites a little higher most years. And yet, blacks feel like three, four times more likely to be arrested, prosecuted, and imprisoned for it. So, what's up with that? <laughs> so, so, I think, you know, with efforts like um, yours, um, you know, and people raising awareness um, uh, of the systemic injustice. Embedded in the criminal justice system, I mean, that's how Black Lives Matter movement started. It's just right. like looking at the systemic um, injustice that you know just is so deeply entrenched that we haven't really been able to unwrap it, unravel it. But I, I think we'll get there with people like you working at it. I think you know, it, and it's going to take more than people of color constantly marching and calling their senators and congressmen, this should be all hands on deck. And justice affects all of us. Like what kind of society do we want to live in?
1: Sure, right? absolutely. Pamela, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing all your wisdom thank and you. knowledge and your passion. I'm sure everyone will thank you for all that you do for this issue of race in America and around the world. Pamela Newkirk, thank you so much.
2: Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for our next Conversations podcast coming soon. If you have a story that needs to be shared, we'd love to hear from you. For more information on Shack15 and our community, you can email info at shack15.com, connect with us on Instagram, or visit our website at shack15.com.